introducing that new hymn to us. Is it in the new Baptist hymnal? It is in the new hymnal. We've got to buy some of those one of these days. I'd say 25 years is long enough to have one hymnal. Oh, sorry. Oh, y'all are there. Okay, sorry. Take your Bibles and turn to 1 Samuel chapter 13. How many of you knew the hymn that Margaret played for the offer, Be Still My Soul? Okay. If you grew up Baptist, you, you probably, if you've learned it, you've learned it recently. It's because it's not in our Baptist hymnal. But I will tell you, there have been times when I have been at my most distraught. Believe it or not, pastors get distraught too sometimes. And um, I'll have, I have a Pandora channel that is just Christian instrumental music. And I have, I have, those of you that know Pandora, you know, you have to keep filtering it to get really what you like. And it's filtered out of where it's either violin or harp or piano or organ or, or guitar. But it's all pretty much hymns and, and, and music. There are probably thousands of songs that will play, hardly ever repeating. And how many times when I've been at my most distraught, I've heard that tune. Be still, my soul. The Lord is on thy side. Bear patiently the cross of grief or shame. Leave to thy God to order and provide. Through stormy ways, he faithful will remain. Be still, my soul, thy best, thy heavenly friend. Through thorny ways leads to a joyful end. What a wonderful reminder. Be still. God is on your side. Bear patiently the cross of grief or pain. Leave to your God to order and provide. He will remain faithful. Well, you may feel like you're on a, a merry-go-round a little bit. Last week, we were in chapter 9 in Bible study, and Brother Dennis brought a message from chapter 14 about Jonathan. Gave you a little bit of an overview of what had happened in between. No, no, we were in chapter 12, weren't we? It was when the people were asking for a king. That's right. We were in chapter 12 in Sunday school, and then he was in chapter 14. Today, we studied chapter 15, Paul's big mistake with Agag, and, um, and now we're going to go back to chapter 13. Because really, to understand the life of Saul, to understand how he can be used of God to be a teaching point for us, we have to understand all of his story. And so, I want us to take just a minute because I really believe that in this passage of, cha of chapter 13, we see the seed, the root of which chapter 15 that you studied in Bible study this morning was the fruit. We begin to see in chapter 13 certain qualities in Saul's life that in the end lead him to the lying, deceiving man who would build a monument to himself that he became. A few weeks ago, I was involved in a psalm meditation on Psalm 14. That is the psalm that is famous for its opening line. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. Wow. 
Now you know why Jesus said, you better be careful who you call a fool. And why the words of Samuel to Saul were so powerful when he said, you're a fool for what you've done. Because you see, when you think about that verse, if you think about what it really means, what it says is that, not that the fool says with his mouth that there is no God. Oh, no, 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 no. He may give all kinds of lip service to God, but in his heart, in the depth of his soul where he makes the life decisions that impact not only his life but the lives of those around him, he acts as if there were no God. He may give all the lip service in the world to God, but when it comes down to making those crucial decisions about life, he makes those decisions as if God were not a factor, as if God were not present, as if God had no interest in this decision that he or she is about to make. That life. It's not that they would consciously say that. They just don't act as if God had any role to play at all. And David said that is the quality of a fool. They make their heart decisions without any consideration, any acknowledgement of God's presence and interest in what's going on. And that's exactly what we see in the life of Saul. You'll remember that after Samuel had anointed Saul back at chapter 9. That was one I was sharing with you two weeks ago when they were looking for the donkeys and, and, and the servant and what was going on. Then Samuel had given Saul some instructions in chapter 10. He had said, now, after he anointed him and said, you're going to be the king, you're going to conquer the Philistines, you're going to be a warrior king, and you're going to lead people out of Philistine control, and here's some things that are going to happen to you. And one of them was, you'll get to Gibeah, and when you get there, the Spirit will overtake you and fill you, and you'll speak in tongues. And that's where the Philistine garrison is. And then do whatever your hand finds, because the God will be with you. Gibeah was Saul's home. So when he got home, Jonathan, as I think Brother Dennis shared with you last week, Jonathan was the one that actually went into the Philistine garrison and attacked because in between those two chapters, before he actually gets settled as king, he has this little run-in at Kiriath-Jarim, and he basically just wipes the dirt with his enemies. And everybody says, oh, now we know you're our king. It was kind of his litmus test, kind of his pop quiz to see if you're going to be king or not, a good king. And he passed that test with flying colors, and then he goes to Gibeah. Jonathan raids the garrison there. And then Saul finds out that uh, the, Gib the, the, the Philistines are not like the, <laughs> the Amorites. They find out that he has attacked one of their garrisons with his little uh, 3,000 troops. And let's just say they're not pleased, okay? <laughs> they are not pleased with this little fly that is buzzing around their heads. And so they come out, it says, with 3,000 uh, 3, chairs. Look at verse 5. Of chapter 13, the Philistines gathered 3,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, and troops as numerous as the sand on the seashore. This is not some little clan at Kiriath-Jerim that he can just wipe up. This is a horde of people. If you've seen the, um, the Ring movies, you know, Return of the King and some of those, this vast hordes of armies that would come against God's people. So Saul goes to Gilgal, the place that Samuel had told him back in chapter 10. You need to get yourself to Gilgal. Wait for me for seven days. But then he said, and when I come, I will tell you what the Lord wants you to do. Well, 
Can you imagine what it was like? Could you imagine being Saul? Your troops are terrified. They're hiding in rocks and hills. They're running across the river, finding a place to hide because of the troops that are amassing against them. Seven days comes, no Samuel. Verse 8. He waited seven days for the appointed time that Samuel had set, but Samuel didn't come to Gilgal, and the troops were deserting him. He had forgotten the second half of Samuel's orders, which is, don't do anything until I get there, and then I will tell you what the Lord wants you to do. He looked at his circumstances, and he decided, i got to take matters into my own hands. We've got to give an offering to the Lord before we go into battle. We've got to sing two, three stanzas just as I am, have an altar call, and then go fight. No sooner does he come back from offering the offering, and Samuel is there, and we'll get to that in just a second. So what's so wrong with that? What's the big hairy deal? He waited the seven days. He even says, when Samuel gets there, verse 10, just as he finished offering the burnt offering, Samuel arrived. Saul went out to greet him. Samuel said, what have you done? Saul answered, when I saw the troops were deserting me, you didn't come within the appointed days. The Philistines were gathering at Michmash. I thought the Philistines would not descend on me at Gilgal. I haven't sought the Lord's favor, so I forced myself to offer the burnt offering. It's me. I had to do it. tell you in one sentence what the problem was. Just a few weeks earlier, in chapter 9 of 1 Samuel, God had appeared to Samuel the night before Saul arrived and said, this is the one who will bring victory over the Philistines because I have heard the cry of my people and I will give them victory through this man. And you got to know that when Samuel talked with Saul, remember we talked about how he had made him a place to sleep up on the roof of his house and he told him, you are going to conquer the Philistines. But in the crisis of the moment, he forgot the promise. Now listen to me. In the crisis, in the expediency of the moment, he forgot that the God of the universe had promised him victory, and he was frightened. And so he took matters into his own hands, made the offering, and that really wasn't the, the sin. I mean, it was a sin too. But the sin was that he had forgotten that God was on his side. Maybe he should have had a Pandora station playing, Be still my soul, the Lord is on my side. But instead, he trusted his own resources. He committed himself to partial obedience. We learned about that this morning in Sunday school, right? He committed himself to partially obeying. And I don't think he really I thought he had done a single thing wrong. It made perfect sense. That's why he came out to Samuel to greet him. If he'd known he had done something wrong, don't you think he would have been kind of hiding back, waiting for Samuel to come find him? But he goes out to meet Samuel. Where were you five minutes ago, dude? We had, we had the offering. You should have been here. It's your fault, Samuel. Don't blame me. People are running crazy. Philistines, thousands upon thousands. You didn't show up. I had to do something. Now, beloved, let's just be honest with each other. We're all good. John Wayne generation... Americans, pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. You made your bed, now you got to lie in it. You got to figure out how to work this thing out. Makes perfect sense. You got to get the job done. The people are fleeing. You thought you were supposed to wait for orders, but you got to do something, and so you just go do. You see, that's why Samuel says to him in verse 13. You have been a fool. 
You have made your decision as if God were not involved. That's what Psalm 14 says, isn't it? The fool says in his heart, God is not involved. There is no God in this situation. Saul didn't come before God to beg of God and ask God what he'd do. He came to perform a ritual that was just as bad as when they carried the ark a few weeks ago into battle. Well, if we bring the ark in, then that'll be our good luck charm. This was Saul's good luck charm. You see, Saul had a major problem here. Saul's problem was he could not accept his role in God's plan. God had said from the very beginning, I will be their king, and I will work through you, but you will listen to me, and you will do what I tell you to do. And Saul never could accept his part. That was his rebellion. That was the rebellion in his heart. And then when he's confronted, he does everything but take the blame. He blames his troops. He blames the Philistines. He blames Samuel. Indirectly, he blames God. And he says, I just did what I had to do. He said, I did what I had to do. I had to do it. I had to do something. So I did it. So what is the punishment? the end of verse 13, it was at this time that the Lord would have permanently established your reign over Israel, but now your reign will not endure. The Lord has found a man loyal to him, a man after his own heart, and the Lord has appointed him as ruler over his people because you have not done what the Lord commanded. Sounds a little harsh to me. He yanks the whole kingdom out of Saul's hand. He says, you will not hold this throne because you did not listen. But you see, it's not really harsh at all because God, see, of course, God knows all things. We know that. But God had to wait until not only the people could see, but Samuel could see that in Saul's heart already there was this seed of, I'll follow God as long as it's convenient for me, as long as it seems to work with my plans. But the minute things start to go wrong, I'm going to take care of myself. So God, you better come on in here and get your job done here or else I'm going to have to do something else to fix this thing out. You see, that's why we learned in chapter 15 today that rebellion is as the sin of what? Do you remember? Oh, you weren't in Sunday school. Okay. For those of us that were in Sunday school this morning, we learned that rebellion is as the sin of idolatry. And the reason is because when we rebel, we say that God is no longer the one that we answer to, we answer to ourselves. Anytime you answer to something other than God, guess what that thing is? It's an idol. And so rebellion becomes, but see, Saul already started this process back here in chapter 13. Saul was determined to usurp power that rightly belonged only to God. So Saul really lives out the anatomy of every sin just about that we commit, maybe every sin that we commit. Do you see the anatomy of the sin? First of all, there's a crisis where a decision has to be made. There is the, the, the tyranny of the urgent. And then the temptation of the sinner is, at, in the midst of this, of this urgent situation, this crisis situation, to not have total reliance on God, to be, to be driven rather by insecurity and self-doubt. And then in the midst of that, take action themselves, himself, herself, to do what they should have let God take care of. Now you think back to the last 25 or 30,000 sins that you've committed. And most of the time, there was a situation 
and you weren't, let's just be honest, at that moment you weren't totally relying on God. And so you make a choice to do what you think is best. And it all goes, you know where. Samuel says when we do that, we are fools. Why? Because it is never right to disobey God's command. Now, there should be at least one amen to that. It is never right to disobey God's command. Every one of us just about in this room, somewhere along the line, memorize Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. There's that word again from Psalm 14, 1. Don't just trust Him with your mind. Don't just trust Him with your lips. Trust Him with your heart. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him. In other words, acknowledge means acknowledge the fact that He is present, and He will make your path straight. Saul didn't understand that truth. And a lot of times neither do I. Or else I forget it. It's never right. There is never a legitimate excuse for disobeying God's commands. And we have to remember that obeying God means obeying His Word. In this case with Saul, it was the Word of Samuel who was coming on God's behalf. In our case, we have the written Word. So obeying God means obeying God's Word. We cannot pick and choose. We cannot translate the way we want. We cannot interpret the way we choose. We cannot pick and choose certain verses and build this little straw house to support our positions. We must be people of God's Word. We have to remember that all of our work, if we are followers of Christ, if we are Christians, truly surrendered to Jesus Christ, then all our work is God's work. Not just your spiritual work. Your work on the job is God's work. Your work in your family is God's work. Your work with your children or your grandchildren is God's work. Your work on your lawn is God's work. He may not care whether you cut in squares or in diagonals, but he cares how you feel about your lawn and what kind of pride you take and how that becomes your status symbol so you can sneer at your neighbors because they don't edge as well as you do or get those, now it's all clover. You know, for a while it was dandelions, now it's clover. Who in the world planted that clover while I was sleeping last night? There was no clover there yesterday. I go camping for two days and clover pops up in my yard. But listen, listen, I don't mind being a little bit humorous, but understand the absolute somber, solemn truth beneath the humor. And that is that if we're a believer, all of our work is God's work. And we should always give everything to Him as an offering. He should be preeminent in all things. And let's not ever forget that things that may seem small to us may be big to God because God sees in those small things the seeds that can lead to a much greater rebellion in the future. And so that's why God is often, and for me of using the word this way, this is a human word, but God may seem it to us to be awfully harsh sometimes in the way that he punishes a seemingly small sin because he goes, if I don't nip this now, it will be much worse and much harder to deal with later. So I'm going to deal with it now. Some of you, well, remember, when your children were young, and you, the first time you noticed that rebellious streak in them, you, you could just sense it. They were two years old, three years old, and you already you could tell, if I let this hair keep growing, I'll never get it under control. And so what you did is you started really ratcheting it down early, lovingly, but firmly, 
helping them understand there is a standard. If you cross it, there will be consequences. Every time, every time, no exceptions. Because you know, you see in that three-year-old the seeds of a 13-year-old or a 23-year-old or a 53-year-old. And so you say, I need, with God's help, to get that taken care of. Now, God's the same way. God says, look, I see this in you. It may seem small to you, but it's not small to me. Now, let me finish up with this verse 14. He says to him in verse 14, Now your reign will not endure. The Lord has found a man loyal to him. I almost always prefer the Holman to almost any other translation, but this is not one of those times. I really like the old phrase, a man after his own heart. That's literally what the Hebrew says. So I guess the Holman translators thought they would help us out. But, you know, just give us what the Word says. The Word says a man after his own heart. And that could mean a man who is totally loyal to God, or it could mean a man that is God's choice. You say, well, I thought Saul was God's choice. No, Saul is the people's choice. God just decided, I'm going to give you what you think you want, and let's see how much you like it. And then once he fails, which I know he will, then I'm going to put my person in, the one that I choose, and he will listen to me. But I got news for you. There's a descendant of David that truly was the man after God's own heart. There was a man who, just like Saul, found himself in a crisis, 40 days in the wilderness. And if you don't think he was truly suffering, you don't eat anything for 40 days and find out how you feel about food. You go for 40 days without eating a scrap of bread. And you're weak, your mind is weak, your, res your resilience, your resistance is weak. And yet every time he responded in obedience. In Hebrews chapter 5, the writer of Hebrews says, During his earthly life, he offered prayers, talking about Jesus, he offered prayers and appeals with loud cries and tears to the one who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Though he was God's son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And after he was perfected, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. Jesus, in his earthly nature, learned obedience by being in the very kind of situation as Saul, but rather than, rather than answering from his own wisdom, his own intellect, his own mind, he said, this is what Scripture says. Remember when he was wrestling with Satan over the temptations? Every time he answered him with Scripture. It is written. It is written. It is written. Not only that, because he did that, we now have a king who reigns secure from a throne in heaven, and he will never be unthroned. He will never be cast out. He will never be cast down. You can always put your trust in him, not just for this life, but for all of eternity. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 8, he's quoting from the second psalm, and he says, to the son, he says, your throne, God, is forever and ever, and the scepter of your kingdom is the scepter of justice. You have loved righteousness, hated lawlessness. This is why God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of joy rather than your companions. So Jesus, because he learned obedience, because he did not let himself be controlled by the situation around him, now has this eternal throne from which he rules and reigns. We also have a king who redeems us, who reconciles us through his obedience. Listen to what Paul says in Romans chapter 5, verse 18. He says, so then, as through one trespass there is condemnation for everyone, that was the sin of Adam, so also through one righteous act there is life-giving justification for everyone. For just as through one man's disobedience the many were made righteous, listen, so also through one man's 
obedience, the many will be made righteous. So because of Jesus' obedience, he has bought for us, he has redeemed us, he has reconciled us, he has sanctified us and set us apart to his service. And lastly, we have a king who is recreating us so that we also can be people after God's own heart. Do you want to be a man or a woman after God's own heart? Do you? Do you want to be a person who God looks at you and says, now there, there, that Nick Creeble, that is a man after my own heart. That Pat Young, she is a woman after my own heart. That Bailey Felix, she is a young lady after my own heart. Do you want God to say that about you? I do. You know how that happens? Let me tell you how it happens. Listen to Hebrews chapter 8, verse 10. This is the covenant. He's quoting from Jeremiah. This is the covenant that I, God, will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds. I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. So you see, this Jesus, who learned obedience, who is the man after God's own heart, who is enthroned, is now king, ruling over all things, and all things return to him. And he also gives us redemption and reconciliation and life through his obedience. And then he also is forming us, writing his word in our hearts, shaping us, making us into his image, so long as. We don't commit the folly of Saul. And that's where I have to close this. I have to ask us. In your heart, at the depth of the places where decisions have to be made in crisis moments, Do you make decisions as if there were no God? May I stand before you as a wounded healer, as a sinner who is also a saint, and tell you there have been many times in my life where I engaged the folly of Saul. There have been many times when I have heard the thunder of the Philistines and I have responded in fear rather than in stopping and trusting God. It's exactly what Peter did when he was walking in the water, remember? He was... He was cool to go. He's just walking out there on the water. Then all of a sudden, he got off of Jesus and started looking around him. And he started to sink. He failed to acknowledge the one who was calling him to himself. So if there are areas in your life today, beloved, where you are making decisions, you may be in a crisis moment. You say, well, Pastor, I don't know what else to do. I've got to do something. I've got to make some kind of a decision here. I'm going to lose my job if I don't. I'm going to lose my family if I don't. I, you know, are you just telling me just to sit back and do nothing? Oh, no. I am telling you to fall on your knees and you fast and you pray until God gives you an answer. But don't act in your own wisdom. Don't act in your own. You say, well, God gave us sound minds. Yes, he did. A sound mind is one that understands that God is the one that rules the heart. An unsound mind is the one that thinks it can rule itself. So I'm asking you, I'm begging you this morning, Examine your heart. Now, understand, some decisions, some of those Saul decisions that I made years ago, they are part of the scars that I carry with me. And as I've told you many times, a scar is either a reminder of your wounding or a reminder of your healing. So thankfully for me, I think I can honestly say to you, as far as I can think it through, those scars are all signs of where God has healed me from past mistakes. 
He said, Steve, we can't undo this. I can't sew a severed finger back on again, but I can help you use the other nine. Okay. And so the same thing is true. You say, Pastor's too late. I've already made some horrible Saul decisions. You know what? What you do is you bring him the pieces of your life and say, Lord, this is where I am. This is what I've done. I know you know it. I'm confessing it to you. I'm asking you from this point forward, let me live out Proverbs 3, 5, 6. I don't want to be a fool. I want to acknowledge you in every part of my life, my relationships, my family, my work, my hobbies, my church. I want everything to be reflected in you and not in my own intellect, my own understanding. And if you will do that, he will take what you have and he will mold it and shape it and you will be a person after his own heart. But you've got to start. It's like we talked about several months ago. You've got to start with repenting, confessing. Lord, I'm sorry. And I'm in this crisis and I don't want to make that mistake again. I need you to help me. And I believe with all my heart that he will. So with that, let's pray together. Father, we love you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for what it teaches us. Lord, there's not a one of us in this room. I, I can say with 99.98% certainty, there's not a one of us in this room that haven't made solace decisions. We've been in the middle of a crisis. And it doesn't really matter whether we made the right or wrong decision. We made the decision without considering you and your will. And so that in itself made it sin. I've done it. I know we all have. But that's no excuse for doing it again. No excuse whatsoever. So, Father, in these quiet moments as we reflect, I'm asking you from the bottom of my heart, Father, as you challenged me two weeks ago, as you broke me one more time to recognizing how many times I have listened to the Philistine hoofbeats and responded in fear rather than with courage. When I stood before the deacon crowd and begged them just like I'm begging these people today to examine their hearts. And to confess full and complete trust in you. Lord, there may be some people in this room who are in the middle of a crisis right now. And their minds, it, it, they need an answer right now. <laughs> but we're going to trust your timing. We're going to do our best to trust you. Because like we sang a few minutes ago, knowing you, Jesus, knowing you, is everything. Nothing else in the end matters. So lead us as we respond to what we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. Now there are altar calls and there are altar calls.